We're continuing this journey through the Gospel of Mark we've set out on, and I was looking at my preaching schedule and how I, I wanted to do, divide it up and everything going on. We should be done around November if we stick to it. If if maybe God doesn't say, hey, let's lead, lead in a different direction, a different series or something, we got to be open to that. But uh, it's kind of interesting looking at this, the way Mark is laid out, how that's such a interesting way to, to divide it all up. But we come to this person today, and he asked Jesus about the greatest commands. He says, what's the most important thing? If, we, if I want to be a righteous man, if I want to be a righteous woman, how do I, that is if I am a woman, okay, how do I, what are the most important things for me to know? What's the most important command means what's the most important thing that I should do. And so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives him his answer. They seem to be on agreeable terms when it's all over. But then going on in the, in the text, Jesus begins to really pick on the scribes. He doesn't rebuke this man, but he does the rest of the scribes as we go on in the, in the text. But if you will stand with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 28 this morning. It says, One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he, meaning the scribe, when Jesus saw the scribe had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. You may be seated this morning. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not the word of Jeff. It's not the word of faith assembly. It's the word of the living King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? And we look at this and we look at our society, our society today. And the title of the message is, Where is the Love? Because sometimes you look at social media, you look at the news, and you kind of wonder, where has love truly gone? Society doesn't get to dictate what love is. The creator of love does. And the Christian, if we're honest, love doesn't come in the shape of a heart. It comes in the shape of a cross. There was a song about 20 years ago by the band The Black Eyed Peas called Where is the Love? I don't really like The Black Eyed Peas. It's rock and roll for people who don't like rock and roll. It's rap for people who don't like rap. It's pop for people who don't like pop. But they had a good point. Where's the love? In our society, there's so much other emotion that drives people. Anger, bitterness, 
selfishness, not truly love. In a month, it's dedicated to uh, an entire people group who insisted when I was a kid, we just want to be able to love because love is love. And now, now they're all about pride. True love doesn't really leave room for pride. True love doesn't really leave room for sin because true love, true love is sacrificial. True love is giving. The truth is, when we love God, we don't just one day decide to love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. God loves us and we love Him back. And when we love Him with all that we are, from that point, we're able to love others with all that He gives. In fact, if there's anything you take away from this message today, I, I hope and I pray it's that. We love Him with all that we are. And when we do that, when we love Him with all that we are, we love others with all that He gives. We have this concept of love in our minds. It's shaped when we're very little. What love looks like. What affection should truly look and feel like. And when we come across this character called Santa Claus, we have this idea of what love is. He watches over me. He, he sees me when I'm sleeping. He sees me when I'm awake. And if I'm good, he loves me and gives me a gift. That is not Christ. We have this other character, this Easter bunny, that if I'm, if I'm relatively good halfway through the year or the, at least get off to a good start, this rabbit, which this is genetically impossible as far as I understand, lays eggs of various colors. And I get to go pick up these eggs and crack them open and inside chocolate because somebody loves me. And the problem we have to understand is love isn't like that. Love doesn't love because of what you've done. Love from God is love because of who He is and what He's done. The truth is we can never be enough to earn His love. We can never be good enough to receive His love. We can only hope to understand it and accept it and receive it. And that's the problem, isn't it? Understanding God's love for us. Why would anybody love me? I know me. I don't even like me. Some people say, well, I like me well enough. I'm good enough. I'm reminded of the old joke, you know, uh, <laughs> what's the guy say? I just had it in my head and I completely lost it. You try to understand women. Women don't understand, or women understand women and they hate each other, right? It's a very sexist joke. Don't laugh at that. But uh, the truth is, when we, the more we know about ourselves and the more honest we are with ourselves, the harder to love ourselves we, we are. And so we look at God and we say, you're this great holy being. How could you possibly love, as John Newton writes, a wretch like me? And yet he does. And we understand that his love, and in his love, he sends his son. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, who dies on a cross as a propitiation for our sins, as a substitute for me, 
and he hangs there and he dies in my place. That's hard to understand, but once we understand that that's the love of a father who sacrifices himself, then we can accept it. And then we begin to receive all that that love entails, where the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to shape us and draw us into holiness. That's the Christian life, amen? That's what, we, that's what we're about. And from that love, we begin to love others. There's a, John Piper tells it like this. He says, imagine this beautiful, clear, pure mountain stream hours from your town. And you stumble upon it one day and in great thirst, you bend down and you, you cup your hands and you begin to drink. And it's the purest, most wonderful feeling that fills your very soul. And you come back, what could you possibly do but not tell others? I mean, but, but make sure you tell everyone about this beautiful stream. Come drink from the stream that I've tasted from. When we love God and when He loves us and we understand that, how could we not love others from that point? And that's how Jesus ties this all together here in the Gospel of Mark. We read in verse 28, One of the scribes approached when he heard him debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Now this is the last of that gauntlet of questions that Jesus has been getting. If you recall, he he was asked about his authority by the, the leaders, the chief priests, the high priests, and, and the elders, and some of the scribes. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians formed their unholy alliance and came against him and, and tried to get him arrested by his answer, or at least expose him for a fraud. And the Sadducees came and tried to expose him as a fool. And now this man, one of the scribes, that tells us there were other scribes still standing there, this scribe steps forward. He steps forward and begins to ask a question. Now the scribes, if you recall, way back in chapter 1, we talked a little bit about the scribes because Jesus, in Mark 1, 22, he taught, and people were astonished because he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. And we kind of touched on what that means, but Truly, they were astonished. The scribes were experts in the Old Testament. Their job was to copy the text over and over and, and know the text and, and read it and memorize it. But the authority that they would teach from was not from the scriptures they handled every day. It was from the rabbis who would write about the text. Now, we might say there's nothing that big about that, nothing that bad, necessarily. Many preachers will stand on the shoulders of giants, we say, as they quote commentators and, and look at maps and Bible dictionaries and things of that nature. That's totally all right. But the problem became the scribes' only authority was the rabbis and their writings about Scripture. It was not Scripture itself. When we preach, and I have taught this with Calvin as well, when we go to develop a sermon, when we go to study Scripture, the prayer of our heart should be, Lord, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see what's in the Scripture and I can develop my own thoughts. And if the commentators disagree, I want to know why they disagree. And if my study Bible has a different 
opinion. I want to know why, where I went wrong. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. And so the scribes wouldn't do that. They would just take the rabbi's opinion and say, well, that must be fact, until they disagreed with the rabbis. And then they had to find other rabbis who would support their opinion, not, not in the Scripture itself. <clears throat> the difference is when Jesus would preach, he didn't preach on the authority of the rabbis. He spoke of his own authority because he is the source of the Scripture. And he's also the focus of the Scripture. All of the, all of the Old Testament testifies of Christ. But this man, he steps forward. He'd heard Jesus debating with the Sadducees. Sometimes that gets translated arguing or disputing. It's the Greek word Susan Taunton. And it means a detailed argument or a meticulous debate. In other words, this was a competition of ideology and oratory and intellect all combined. And these men were going at it. And Jesus hears this. I'm sorry, the scribe hears Jesus when he says, Jesus answered them well. Jesus won the debate. Jesus silenced the, the Sadducees. That was a big deal, by the way, because if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, they were a religious majority. The Sadducees were very outspoken. And if Jesus, with his answer, could shut them down and shut them up, he truly is a man of authority. And this man comes forward, and he doesn't seem to come forward in a way to pin Jesus down or mock him or expose him. In fact, if we understand the text, and it's my opinion, and I just want to be clear about that, it's my opinion, this man came forward in sincerity in his question. Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? Now, when Matthew records this, he has him say, Teacher, he also has the Sadducees and the Pharisees say, teacher, Mark doesn't. And I think the reason Mark doesn't have him initially call him that is to show us the previous groups tried to flatter Jesus. This man comes with a sincere question. He doesn't call him teacher right out the gate. He does call him that after hearing his response. After hearing Jesus' reply, he acknowledged, yeah, you're a teacher. You know what you're talking about. And he says, which command is the greatest? Now we have to understand the backdrop to that. The, the way the, the scribe is looking at his question as he asks Jesus this. Because the rabbis had decided there were 613 commandments in the Torah. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 613 things everybody had to do. Could you imagine trying to live up to that? And of those commands, 248 were affirmative, and 365, that's an interesting number, were negative. And they all agreed on this. But what they did not agree on was the priority of the commands. Which ones were heavier, which ones were lighter. Which ones, if they were to be ranked in importance, which ones got pushed to the top and which ones didn't? Now, if I'm wrong in my opinion about Jesus, so be it. 
It's possible that he's asking Jesus this question because he wants to understand if Jesus has developed his own ranking, his own theology, his own orthodoxy. And if he answers in an unorthodox way, if he answers in a way that, that contradicts the majority of thought, they can come to him and say, you don't need to be teaching in the temple anymore. You've lost your place here. You're a false teacher. You teach in opposition to the law. Instead, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus answers him like this in verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is a portion of Scripture called the Shema or Shema. And no matter what, this was the highest ranking law, the highest ranking command. Everyone agreed on this one. This was the most important. When the rabbis would argue and when they would feud, this was the one they all came together and said, okay, but at least God is one. We only serve one God. And he tells us we're to love him with all that we are. Now, if you read that in, in Deuteronomy 6, it reads like this. And I want you to pay attention this morning. As you look at the screen, look at Jesus' answer, and then keep in mind what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, Jesus added something. If anybody in history is able to, permitted to, capable of adding to Scripture, it's the author. And so he adds this little phrase, with all your mind. Why does Jesus do this? Well, if you'll permit me, I'm going to quote Apollo Creed from the movie Rocky. Jesus wants you to be a thinker, not a stinker. He wants you to use your mind, to have an active mind. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to shut off our brains. God gives us our mind for a reason. He created your mind for a purpose. And it is to be active in your spiritual life as much as it is in every other aspect of your life. The Apostle Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. I've heard people say, just shut off your brain and go with the feelings. Do not ever do that. We are not told in Scripture to do that. We are to be active in our thinking active in our discernment, active in what we are saying and praying. We're not just to go with the flow. Jesus and Paul make it very clear we are to use our minds. Now another reason he's saying this is because this scribe is someone who is an independent thinker. He's an intelligent person. He's an educated, learned man of the Torah. He's a scribe who thinks for himself. And he comes forward to Jesus. And so Jesus knows this. 
And the scribe doesn't miss that Jesus says this because in his reply, he mentions understanding as a place from where we love God. And we'll get to that in verse 33. But the fullness of what Christ is truly saying is that we do not just love God with our heart. We do not just love God with our soul. We do not just love God with our mind or just our strength, but with our whole being. With everything that we are, we are to love God. Now you might ask, why does he make this so clear? Why does he take time to spell that out for us? Well, first of all, because it's the truth. Every atom, every cell, every fiber of our being is meant to be used for worship. To glorify God. That's true worship. But how many of you know context is key? Right? Georgette raised her hand. Finally, we've got it. Wednesday night, Wednesday nights, that's what we talk about. Context, context. And it's not just the immediate context of Scripture, but all of Scripture and how it sings and harmonizes to us. And when we get to the book of Revelation, there's this group mentioned that we don't hear a lot about. The Nicolaitans. Now you might remember if you were part of the the Wednesday night Bible study when we went through Revelation, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. But they and the Gnostics, which is another group, they would often teach that people were separate entities within themselves. What I mean by that is this. They would believe that you could be saved in your mind and in your spirit. But your physical body, they would say, well, that's going to be burned up anyway. That's going to be destroyed. That's going to rot and decay. So you can do whatever you want with your physical body. That's a pagan belief. Now we look at that, we say, well, that's silly in spite of Scripture. But how many people truly believe this, even today? Jesus, by the way, said you to the church at Ephesus, he said, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hates the false teachings that teach us we can do this. And there are many people today who believe they can continue in sin with their physical bodies but yet their spirit is right before God. It does not work that way. Paul tells us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. He writes elsewhere, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. We are meant to love God and worship Him with all that we are. But love is not just this two-way street between our our person. I just bit my cough drop. Sorry. <laughs> between our person and heaven. I did it again. When we love him, when we truly do worship him and love him, and he loves us, we are able to worship others. With all that he gives, I'm going to throw this microphone in the trash. Not really. I don't know why it's doing that. Technical difficulties. Please stand by. You see me do this, right? It's working now, I think. We'll try it. We go on in verse 31. The second is this. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. You know, people love to bring this up. Non-Christians love, ooh, I think it is working now. Non-Christians love to tell Christians how to love others, don't they? I was at a little get-together at my wife's house that she grew up in. Uh, We were dating, I think we were engaged. And her brother had graduated, oh, there it is again. Her brother had graduated high school. And her little cousin, this was about 20 years ago, uh, her little cousin, Maddie, I would tease her and call her Mouse. And I love to tease the kid. You know, I just would do that and play with her. And, and she's a good kid. Even now, she, you know, she's in her 20s and she gives it back uh, when we're together. But uh, my wife had this pet rabbit named Ollie. And someone had taken Ollie out of its cage to, to walk around the house. And I, we were getting ready to eat dinner. And I looked at Maddie and I said, hey, Mouse. Uh, Ollie's not in his cage, so we're going to put you in it, okay? And you don't get any food. And I was just teasing the kid. Obviously, we're going to not put the kid in the cage. Okay, that takes a whole new meaning in today's light, right? But I said, we're not going to do, we're not really going to do that. We're going to give, make sure you get food. She just said, I'm not getting in that cage. I won't even fit. And then she ran away before I could stuff her in. I wasn't going to try. And it was all meant to just joke with a little kid. And this older lady from Jennifer's church looked at me and she goes, aren't you supposed to be a children's pastor? What does that mean? She thought I was being unloving, I guess. And so first of all, I said, no, actually, I'm going to college for missions. I'll probably be a youth pastor. Um, What's the problem? Well, that just wasn't really nice to say that to the young lady. And I said, do you really think I was going to stick a kid in a cage? But people like to do this. They like to tell us how to love. They like to call out Christians when we're not being loving. If you haven't watched the news lately, they've been doing it quite a bit. I watched a, a person just last night on one of the news channels say, if you don't shop at Target this month, you are a terrorist. My, how the bar has been lowered since 9-11. Because I don't want to go to Target. I'm a terrorist. Wow. People love to tell us how to love, don't they? And yet Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting the law, which many would say is an unloving thing. And yet all it does is prove God's heart all along. He says, do not take, this is Leviticus 19.18. He says, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is part of what's called the holiness code. From Leviticus 17 to Leviticus 26.46. This is how they were to conduct themselves. And loving your neighbor as yourself is not loving yourself less. It's not treating yourself worse. It's loving others by the same standard you want to be loved. Jesus makes this very clear earlier in his ministry in Matthew chapter 7. He says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. Right? 
By the way, Leviticus 19.18 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in all the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, James, the early church got the message, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is, is a driving force behind our actions, our thoughts, and how we talk about one another, how we treat one another. And we have to ask, well, who's our neighbor? Somebody else asked Jesus that question, and he gave this long story about this good Samaritan. You might have heard that story. And at the end of it, Jesus says, now who was the man's neighbor? And the scribe who asked the question said, what was the man who was good to him? And Jesus says, what? Go and do likewise. You go be loving to other people. You go be a neighbor to others. Neighbor is anyone with whom there's contact. Now, that means it's in, to the Israelite, to the Jewish person, to the Hebrew, that's anyone in their sphere of influence, whether or not they are an Israelite themselves or a immigrant, a resident alien. In fact, the law was expanded by the time you get to Leviticus 19.34 to include the resident alien. It says you will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, that brings up a fun topic. Immigration, right? That can divide a church in 10 seconds flat. But when we understand biblical resident aliens, we look at the book of Ruth, and what is the one thing we understand? They were assimilating into the culture. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. They didn't come to take over. They came to be a part of. This passage, by the way, is not, this passage is not about immigration. It's about loving those, loving, loving those around us. We begin to think about these things. We think about how we're to love. Many times we let our emotions guide us or our own ideologies. Or if we're honest, our own white guilt or racism, things of that nature. And that's not the pastor being woke. That's the truth of the matter. That we do have these tendencies in ourselves. And we're not to think about these things from those places. I said this a couple of weeks ago. We're not thinking politically. We're to think biblically. What does Scripture truly tell us? It tells us to love our neighbor. We can't change laws. We can't change history. But we can show love to the people in our sphere of influence. And that's what we're to do. We should care about what happens at the border and how many people are coming in. But we should also remember that we shouldn't care more about that than we do our brother or sister across the sanctuary. There are so many people more passionate about politics, but they, won't, they aren't passionate about the person across the street. That's not what Christ is talking about. He says we are to love. Now, I mentioned earlier, this whole month is about pride. Love leaves no room for pride. True love leaves no room for pride. When a people group openly says, look at our sin, the Christian in love should rightfully call it sin. 
But you've heard enough about that, I'm sure. So we'll move on to verse 32. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe understands Jesus because he understands the Old Testament. Moral concerns take precedent over ceremonial practices. When he says understanding, by the way, that's including our emotions, our thoughts, our, our, uh, our state of mind. It includes all of that, our soul and our mind. It doesn't matter to this man how sacrifices are done nearly as much as the heart behind them the obedience in doing them, and the motives behind the sacrifices. We see this throughout the Old Testament. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we see this throughout the Old Testament, Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. They come before God they, with this unsanctioned, unholy, strange fire. They had a thing to carry the fire. There was supposed to be fire brought, but it was their motives and their intentions behind it because a holy God demands a holy fire. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is told to completely annihilate the Amalekites, this race of people who hated Israel, who wanted to destroy them. And he's told to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I'm going to grab a different microphone. I'm sorry for putting this off for so long. Told to. Can you turn this up for me, Jacob? Sorry. He's told to completely annihilate these Amalekites. Their king, Agag, is a man who was a valiant warrior. He was a good fighter. But he's to be put to death too, and Saul leaves him alive. And Samuel comes to the camp, the prophet Samuel, and he says, did you kill everybody like you were supposed to? Saul was told literally to kill every man, woman, and child, all the cattle, all the sheep, all the goats, everything. If it breathed, by the time Saul was done, it wasn't breathing. And Samuel shows up and he says, did you do what you were supposed to do? And Saul straight lies to his face. Absolutely, I did. And Samuel says, you liar. I can still hear the cows mooing. It's 1 Samuel 15, 14, the Jeff Williams translation. You can pick it up at our church bookstore that doesn't exist. He says, I still hear him. Why didn't you do this? And this is what Saul says. He says, because I thought they'd make great sacrifices for the Lord your God. That's a red flag, by the way. He didn't say our God. Samuel's God. And make great sacrifices. And Samuel's reply, he says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And by the way, he kept Agag alive because Agag was a great fighter. And Saul wanted to show how much of a better fighter he was. He could parade Agag around and say, Look who I captured. And it was a blight upon Israel. Saul loses his kingdom over the whole thing. Samuel is the one who hacks Agag to pieces. And years later, 
this queen, this Jewish queen named Esther comes along. And there's this man who wants to annihilate the people. His name's Haman. And guess who he is? He's an Agagite. If Saul had been obedient, Esther's job wouldn't have been so hard. Because God does honor obedience. Because obedience shows our love. And so many times we want to say, but God, didn't you see what I did for you? Didn't you see the sacrifice I gave? And our heart could be so far from him, it doesn't matter. And, I, and Isaiah, Isaiah points this out. He says, God's had enough of false sacrifices. He just wants our love. And so God says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. But that's hard. That means I've got to actually be loving. That means I've got to live what I say I believe. God basically is saying, clean up your act. Worship in obedience and the love of God and love of others. Correct the oppressor. The oppressor was a ruthless thief who tried to keep people down. Second Peter 2 mentions these types of men who will infiltrate the church and make merchandise out of the people. We're to correct them. Defend the fatherless. Why are they fatherless? Because dad probably died in battle. This is the single parent home. The single moms. When people come into our church and they're a single mom, we don't ask a lot of questions. We say, how can we serve you? How can we love you? How can we bless you? We don't need to know their backstory. Not right away. Plead the, cause of the, plead the widow's cause. Care for the elderly. We don't know their battles, we, but we can still love them. Amen? This is for the church. This is absolutely for the church. Paul tells uh, the church in Rome, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. But if we're really honest, we don't like to do that sort of thing. I know I don't. Sometimes I like to... I, and those of you who know me know this is such a lie. Sometimes I like to say, I'm kind of an introvert. Have you met me? That's not true at all. But I'll use that as an excuse to not have to be loving. To be, yeah, I'm looking at the face of Georgette. You are not an introvert, Pastor. No, not. But sometimes we use things like that as an excuse to not be loving to the world around us. We'll hold on to our hurt. We'll hold on to our bitterness and our frustration. And we'll come to church and we'll say, God, I love you. But I don't love that guy. Right? I don't love the person across the sanctuary from me. And God says, actually John tells us that God says, you cannot do that and say you actually love God and be honest. John says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Fact is, if you don't love somebody who is your brother and sister in Christ, 
you do not love God, period. Jesus says this, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. When we love him with all that we are, we are able to love with all that he gives. Now, I want you to pay attention. This is the last verse. When Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Jesus does not rebuke this man. But he does challenge and compliment him. He challenges and compliments the scribes. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But the truth is, you're not there yet. You're this close, buddy. That's what Jesus is saying to him. This man understands the law. He understands the Old Testament. He puts the Shema above the temple. He puts the love of God above the love of things. He puts the love of others above the love, love, uh, love of the Torah or ceremony. It's just like, like the rich young ruler. Jesus says, you lack one thing. You just got to know this one more thing. You just got to do this one thing. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you just got to be born again. This man was missing it by this much. If he understood, <clears throat> if he truly understood the Torah, the law, and the temple, he'd know it was pointing him to the one he's talking to. And he would follow Jesus. But at this point, the people are done questioning. The gauntlet is over. And Jesus is going to begin teaching. It's what he came to do. That's why he came to town that day. Sitting in Solomon's portico, he's going to begin to teach the people. And everyone's going to leave him alone and let him do it now. But we have to look at this, this text and ask that question, how do I love God? How do we as a church love him? How do we love others? Do we love others? How do we show our affection and our love for them? We get frustrated with one another very easily. You know, I've been your pastor now for almost exactly four years. Next month, I start my fifth year. Isn't that crazy? When that long ago feels like we had our conversation in the basement, do you even want to come to Lisbon? That's what Wes asked me. We've been told that nobody, or what was it you said? It was, uh, we've been told by people, I feel called to a town with a Starbucks. Not me. I'm so glad I'm here. But you know, so many times in the past four years, I've seen old grudges rear their head in this church. Where forgiveness and love should reign. And church, I'm, I'm guilty myself. I'm not innocent in that. Many of, many of you have known each other for decades. And you get frustrated with one another. That's why it's called the church family, Right? My dad's visiting, and last night we talked about a relative, I won't specify which one, who's very frustrating. It happens, but we still love. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up. A couple weeks, or sorry, last week, my friend Jason Fisher was visiting. He wasn't speaking but he shared with me this story. He was asked to speak at another church for a friend and he'd been in the building five minutes, five minutes. 
And he said he came up to someone who was kind of an elder in the church, uh, a deacon or a board member or something like that. And the pastor was there. And this guy gets, pulls Jason aside and he begins to tell him how frustrated with the pastor he is. Just putting the pastor down. Jason said, my job out at the floor. I walked into this church just going to preach a message. And they don't even like their pastor. They don't even love their pastor. And church, I don't say that story because it's a, it's a light on anybody here or anything like that. I say it because how we love and how we talk about others and how we treat other people, it really does matter. Jason said, I'll never preach in that church again. I don't ever want to be asked back there. It reflects in how we love Christ. You've heard me say throughout this entire series, your, your life imitates your theology. How you love the people in your sphere of influence reflects on how you love Christ. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. And I mentioned grudges, bitterness, frustrations. If you're here and you're struggling with that, take some time where you are. Come to the altar. We'd have somebody pray with you, pray for you. More than welcome to, if you need to go, I would just ask you, take the fellowship out to the tables, out in the fellowship area. But this morning, if you're saying, you know what, I'm not loving others the way I should be. I don't love God the way I'm supposed to. There's no better time like the present to change. And so this morning, I would ask you just to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance. Seek His conviction. And find a place to pray. Lord of Lords, you are holy.